Well, as you all know, this is uh, an event in the Milton Keynes Science Festival 2008, and I'll, uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about that later on. Um, tonight, we're very lucky to have with us um, Hermione Coburn, who I've, I've worked with before now. Uh, she's a presenter, as you probably already know, but for those of you who don't know, she's a presenter of the Open University BBC4 series, uh, Fossil Detectives, which finished about two weeks ago, but... The good news is that it's being repeated on BBC Two starting this Friday. So if you did miss it, or if you enjoyed it so much, you want to see it again, Friday, 7 o'clock, BBC Two, this Friday. That's uh, Yes, I should point out that the, the series is actually fully funded by the Open University. Most of the intelligent television programs on, on BBC are actually funded, co-funded or totally funded by the, the Open University and Fossil Detectives is one of those that's been completely funded by the OU. It was made by the Natural History Unit of the BBC uh, down in Bristol um, but the OU did fund for it all. I have to get a plug in. I also have to give an acknowledgement to Peter Sheldon who has been busy with Peter Skelton. There's Peter Sheldon down there. He's the academic advisor, he's an Open University academic, who's the Open University's uh, academic advisor for this particular series. And Peter's very kindly agreed to come and help answer some questions with Hermione. So the format of the evening is, I'll shut up in a minute. I just have to give you the, the legal stuff. And I'll shut up, I'll introduce Hermione. Uh, she will talk for about 45 minutes, there'll be a few clips from the series. And then there'll be plenty of time for questions afterwards. If you do need to slip out... Uh, then if you could do that quietly, um, I'd, I'd very much appreciate it. Um, right, her, what can you say about Hermione Co uh, Coburn? Hey? What can you say? <laughs> no, not, <laughs> not in front of her, anyway. <laughs> and she's been an open university tutor, or an associate lecturer, as we call them, for four years now, working on the open university course Environmental Science. Um, she tutors the whole of Scotland. And she's been doing that for four years. She's also fronted uh, quite a few BBC television programmes for the OU. Coast, um, Fossil Detectives, of course. Uh, what else have we got? So we have the Natural History of Britain um, and Rough Science. You, you were involved in that as well, weren't you? But she's here tonight to give us a talk. I don't know what the title of the talk is. Fossil Detectives. Fossil Detectives, yes. I think it wasn't in the programme. So would you put your hands together, please, for Hermione Coburn. <laughs> okay, thank you very much, Mike. Um, I'm really delighted to see so many of you here tonight. Thank you so much for coming along. And um, to ha I'm really glad to have this opportunity to talk to you about fossil detectives. Now, when I first heard about this series back in May 2007, it was, and was offered the job of presenting it, I was completely over the moon. Um, and I just began to wonder why nobody had thought of this idea before. Why hadn't there really been uh, a really classy BBC series dedicated to fossils in, in Britain? And uh, perhaps the reason for that is that not everyone I spoke to and told about the series initially um, shared my surprise or enthusiasm that nobody had really done eight half-hour shows on fossils in Britain. And their reaction was really, you know, eight half-hours, that's four hours of television, 
You're going to stay in Britain. You're not going anywhere else. And it's only about fossils. Hmm. What are you going to talk about? And uh, <laughs> the thing about fossils in Britain or British paleontology is that as soon as you scratch the surface, surface of this topic, you, are, you quickly realize that you are completely spoiled for choice, uh, for wonderful and incredibly varied stories um, that reveal not only remarkable scientific discoveries made by professionals, but also wonderful discoveries made by amateurs around the country. It also enables you to to get really fascinating insights into ancient life and past environments of Britain. And tonight what I want to do is just share um, a few of my favourite stories that we selected from the wealth that are out there to put in the series. Now perhaps before I go on, a little show of hands. Did anyone manage to catch any of the shows on BBC4? Oh, yes, quite a few hands going up. That's good. But then quite a few hands not going up. So that's good. We've got a, a bit of a split in the audience. So some of you are going to know what I'm talking about more than others, perhaps. But everyone will get a chance to, to see what I'm talking about. Before I start showing you and telling you my favorite stories from the series, we should probably clarify a couple of things. And the first thing I think it's important to clarify is what do we actually mean by a fossil? Well, a fossil can be very simply defined um, as simply any evidence of ancient life that is naturally preserved. And, and fossils really broadly, and um, this is where if you've got more questions about the details of paleontology, to, to direct them to Peter later on. But to my mind, fossils, and as we handle them in the series, broadly fall into two different categories. We've got body fossils, and you might be able to guess from the name that a body fossil is perhaps... Um, the shell or the teeth or the bones, some actual part of the body of an animal that has been fossilized. And the way that a body fossil forms, again, we're talking sort of the majority of cases here, is that after an animal dies, its carcass needs to be quickly buried out of reach of bacteria that might cause it to decay or scavengers that might munch it up. You need to bury that dead animal and begin to compress it under layer upon layer of sediment. So you might have an animal that dies by the side of a river and a flood event covers it with mud, for example. That could be the trigger that starts off a fossilization process. And after many millions, potentially, of, of, of years, that fossil, that animal, will become buried and compressed under layers of sediments. And gradually, as those sediments turn to rock, parts of that animal will also be preserved as rock, mineralized within the layers of sediment that have lithified or turned to rock. And then in due course, perhaps millions of years later, due to earth movements at the surface, erosion, that little evidence that we have, that, that piece of fossilized bone or, or, or tooth will suddenly be at the surface for you or me to walk along the beach on the Jurassic coast in Dorset and pick up. So that's really how a body fossil comes to be there sitting on the beach for us. The other type of common fossil is uh, what's called a trace fossil. Now, instead of being part of an animal itself, a trace fossil is evidence of an animal's activity. So in that category, we put fossilized footprints, for example, like the dinosaur footprints that you can find in South Wales or on the North Yorkshire coast. They were stories that we featured in the series. Um, other trace fossils, things like burrows, 
um, nests, trackways, any evidence that animals or, or plants lived in the past. And together, the body fossils and trace fossils make up what we call the fossil record. And that's the collection and range of fossil evidence that um, can be traced through time in the rocks and that give us this tremendous insight we have into ancient life and the evolution of life on our planet. So that's really, a, a nut, in a nutshell, what are we talking about when we mean fossils? The second thing that you might be wondering by now is why Britain is so good for fossil detecting. Why don't we need to go abroad to make an eight-part television series? Well, to get a really good diversity of fossils from different ages, what you need is rocks of different ages. And the one thing that we have beneath our feet in Britain is a, a huge geological diversity. And in fact, for a smallish country, we arguably have the most diverse geology anywhere on the planet. And that is particularly true in Scotland, where I live. And um, the rocks that we have in Britain, they've um, the reason they're so diverse is that we have a very dramatic, very intricate geological history. Lots of movements of land masses across the surface of the earth have been drawn together to build up our nation over millions of years. And the rocks in Britain represent almost all the geological periods of time, dating from more than three billion years ago. Some of the oldest rocks that you can find in the whole of Europe are up in Scotland, right up to the present day where we have internationally significant sections of sediments that represent just the past half million years or, or, or so of geological time, relatively very recent geological past. So we have this huge diversity of rocks and hidden in those rocks uh, waiting to be discovered are a huge diversity of fossils. Now, the fossil record in Britain doesn't date back to the oldest rocks. It dates back to about a billion years. And every programme in the series starts with the line, life began in Britain more than a billion years ago. And what I'm talking about when I say that, perhaps are not the most exciting fossils you've, you've ever seen or heard of, <laughs> but I'll explain in a moment. But um, we are still talking about uh, life, evidence for life of over a thousand million years ago. The older rocks that we have in Britain are a type of rock uh, that don't contain any fossil evidence, but from dating from about a billion years, we do have fossils. And you find them up in the far northwest of Scotland in rocks called the Torridonian sandstones. And these fossils that we have dating from this time are really nothing more than a few little wrinkles that to the trained eye can be picked out in some very ancient sandstones up there. And what they are is that they're evidence that microbes uh, tiny microscopic creatures once lived on the sandy sediment that formed these rocks. And sadly, to my mind, this story wasn't deemed visual enough to make the cut for the Scottish programme because it really is touch and go whether, you know, it would have made an exciting story. But although those fossils are simple, it is worth remembering, I think, that those microbes were the precursors to the staggering array of, of life that we see around us today. And we really can trace the history of life back a staggering length of time in Britain. Now, uh, in Fossil Detectives, um, the series takes a regional approach. So each 
programme looks at a specific region of the country. But we wanted to do more than simply say, travel to the north of England and say, oh, look, these are the fossils you can find here, or down in the southwest of England, these are the fossils you can find. We wanted to really bring together a, a great diversity of stories um, reflecting major discoveries, both old and new, uh, places to visit to find your own fossils, as well as to demonstrate how fossils inform us about ancient life and to surprise you, the audience, uh, as much as entertain you. And, that's, and I've chosen a few clips tonight that represent the different types of stories that we've put together for the series. Now, uh, I've mentioned that... Um, we're so spoilt for choice for stories because of the huge geological diversity that we've got in Britain. But another reason why there are so many stories to choose from is that major steps in the history of the, deve in, in the, history of the development of paleontology as a science took place in Britain, in the, especially in the early 19th century, when it was just emerging as, as a scientific discipline. And ever since then, really, British scientists have continued to be a major force in paleontological research, and they've often have not had to venture very far afield to make new discoveries at the cutting edge of the discipline right over the last 150, almost 200 years. So that's another reason why there were just so many stories to choose from, and it's back to the early pioneering days of paleontology that I want to go first. And to talk about the discovery of possibly the best known and best loved of the extinct ancient creatures, of course, the dinosaurs. Now, I don't want to preempt too much as what's in the clip, but it's, it's likely that what we now know to be dinosaur bones have been turning up in places all over the world for, for centuries. And one of the earliest written attempts to account for what these mysterious giant bones that have been turning up in the landscape might be, dates from 1677, when the keeper of the, uh, the then keeper of the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, not too far away from here, called Robert Plot, proposed that a large bone fragment that had come from a local quarry um, to the, around near Oxford, out of there, the rock types are um, shales and limestones, sedimentary rocks that date from Jurassic times, that's the, you've all heard of Jurassic Park, I would imagine, the, uh, one of the periods where the uh, dinosaurs roamed. We now know, but of course at the time they, A, didn't know when the Jurassic was, and B, that these were dinosaurs. And, but Robert Plot sort of made an attempt to account for this giant bone that he found. And he proposed initially that it could be that a bone from an elephant that the Romans had brought to Britain. Uh, which I think was a pretty good guess. Uh, uh, you know, if you find a giant bone, the only giant animal you know is an elephant. So you think, mm, possibly an elephant. The Romans, we know that they brought elephants, so possibly an elephant bone. But he also thought that it was perhaps more likely to be the thigh bone of extremely large man dating from the past. Now, <laughs> less likely, however, he, he actually called this fossil specimen scrotum humanum because if you imagine the shape of the end of a thigh bone, it curiously resembled certain male body parts. So <laughs> it was a good name, but he wasn't sadly along the right lines. Um, it took 
three really uh, brilliant minds from the early 19th century um, to correctly deduce what these giant bones were. Now, of these three people, the first person to get a mention in the discovery of dinosaurs is uh, not my favourite character from paleontological history, but nonetheless a very important one, a man called Professor Richard Owen, who later founded the Natural History Museum in London. And it was Owen who really invented the idea of dinosaurs by putting three particular extinct giant reptiles that had been previously recognised, and we'll come to that in a minute, uh, from their fossils into a new group of animals that he termed dinosauria back in 1841, and that literally meant the terrible lizards. Now, the first of the three original dinosaurs that Owen put into this new category, or I should say the first of the original giant reptiles that Owen put into this new category, um, was called Megalosaurus. And um, it was uh, formally, scientifically described by a man called William <coughs> Buckland, a colourful character um, from the University of Oxford, um, as well as that bone, that scrotum humanum that Robert Plott had found. Buckland, the uh, professor of mineralogy at Oxford at the time, um, also was collecting bones from the countryside around Oxford, from the quarries uh, to the north, a particular quarry to the north of the city. And he puzzled over these bones and he finally decided that this was actually a giant reptile that he called Megalosaurus. And um, the first clip I'm going to show you is my encounter with the original Megalosaurus fossil that Buckland named that you can see uh, by visiting Oxford's, um, Oxford University's Museum of Natural History. And I'm in the company of another quite a colourful character called uh, Phil Manning, who is a dinosaur expert from the University of Manchester, who is a regular contributor to the Fossil Detectives series and an expert on dinosaurs. So let me just line this clip up for you. The clip begins with a kind of montage of the various uh, fossils that you can find in the museum before we get on to the story of Megalosaurus. Okay. is the megalosaurus that inspired Charles Dickens, the world's first ever scientifically identified dinosaur. It was found in Oxfordshire in the 1800s. Identified as a giant lizard-like creature, fossil hunters back then estimated it would have been 12 metres long. One of the founders of paleontology, William Buckland, added it to his collection and named it Megalosaurus. Phil Manning is a modern-day dinosaur hunter. Buckland had a few more bones to go on, though, didn't he? Yeah, but he didn't have a complete animal. Here you can see he's just got the hips. The... Uh-oh. <laughs> right leg and a bit oh, of skull. Okay. <laughs> it really is hard painting a picture of what that animal would have looked like for Buckland. And 150 years ago, 
this is what the sort of state of the art of paleontology said that Megalosaurus looked like. And of course, our view of this animal has changed a great deal now. If we start with the tip of the nose of the animal, working our way back through what are very narrow jaws, backwardly curved serrated teeth, typical of a predatory dinosaur, up to a really muscular neck, a bulldog-shaped neck, quite a big torso actually, but very small forearms, quite unusual looking, but big, powerful hind legs and a big backside. And on the back of that backside, a very long, tapering tail. A typical predatory dinosaur. Why is it that people talk of Megalosaurus as the first discovered dinosaur, when presumably for hundreds, maybe even thousands of years, people must have been digging up bits of dinosaur bone? Yes, but these were interpreted with myth and legend. The Victorians brought order from the chaos of this to reconstruct these animals and bring them back to life using science. Well, here, Phil, we have arguably the world's most famous dinosaur, Tyrannosaurus rex, towering above us. How would T-Rex have compared to Megalosaurus? Well, at a distance, you could be forgiven for mistaking one for the other, because they look pretty much the same, but get close up and there are subtle differences. One, this is much bigger, at 12 metres long, whereas Megalosaurus is only 9 metres long. Megalosaurus, quite skinny, this is a heavyweight boxer. There's at least 100 million years between Megalosaurus and Tyrannosaurus rex. Now, we are closer to T-Rex than Megalosaurus was, because it's only 65 billion years for us to travel to meet T-Rex. So there's no chance that Tyrannosaurus and Megalosaurus would ever have met then? Absolutely none whatsoever. So that was Megalosaurus, just a few bones, but nevertheless the first scientifically described dinosaur by William Buckland. So Buckland, together with Richard Owen, who later coined the term dinosaur, go down in history as two of the academic elite uh, from the Victorian era as the discoverers of dinosaurs. But there is a third man in the story, um, perhaps lesser known but um, whose work and ideas were absolutely crucial to the discovery of dinosaurs. And this man is a little bit of a hero of mine. His name was Gideon Mantell. He was a country doctor based in Lewis in Sussex, whose passion from a very early age was fossils. Now, Mantell lived at a similar time to, to Buckland and Owen in the early 1800s. He was uh, developing his passion for paleontology as an amateur. Uh, but he was, a, he was a country doctor. He didn't have the luxury of dedicating his life to science like Buckland and Owen did. Um, and he spent every spare moment he had out on the South Downs looking for fossils. But he also studied fossils um, that were sent to him uh, from various places around the south of England. And one day he received a box of fossils from a village not far from Lewis called Cookfield. And uh, they came from a quarry in Cookfield at Whiteman's Green, and that just happens to be the place where I was born and grew up in. So you can see that this part of the story has a very special place in my heart. Now, when Mantel first received these bones, uh, no one had yet deduced what they really were. Buckland didn't know. Uh, Owen was, came on the scene much uh, a few years later in the story. And uh, Mantell was really puzzled by these bones. Now, very intrigued, he began to make regular trips to the quarry at Cookfield. And on one of those visits, perhaps in 1821 or 1822, not entirely sure, he found 
a fossilised tooth. And it was this fossilised tooth um, that really led him to make the first uh, conceptual leap, if you like, that these bones that he, we were, he was finding and, and these fossilised teeth that went with them were, could be nothing else apart from a giant extinct reptile from the past. Now, uh, that was a huge, as I say, a sort of conceptual leap. And it took him some time to really persuade others that his, his idea had any merit. And remember that he was just a country doctor. He wasn't an established academic of the day. And sadly, it took Mantel several years to, to persuade the academics of his time that he was correct. Now, Buckland was well aware of Mantel's work and picked him to the post with his description of Megalosaurus and actually published his account of Megalosaurus just one year um, uh, in 1820. Oh, my God, I haven't got the dates here. And from memory, I'm saying uh, Buckland published in 1824 and Mantell published in 1825. But really, depending on your interpretation of history at this time, it was Mantell who had made that original suggestion that there were these ancient reptiles that were now extinct but had lived in the distant past. So if you haven't heard of Gideon Mantell, remember his name before you remember Buckland or Owen would be, would be my message to you. Um, because I mentioned that Owen coined his coined his phrase and invented the dinosaurs based on three extinct reptiles from the past. We had Buckland's Megalosaurus, then Mantell's dinosaur that he found in Cookfield, he called Iguanodon. And actually, I've just forgotten that I brought this along. This, although you won't be able to see it very closely from where you are, you can come and look at it later. This is the kind of thing that Mantell would have been sent from that quarry at Cookfield because this is a fragment of an iguanodon bone set still in a piece of sandstone that comes from Cookfield. And this is, well, it's a prized possession of my mother, which I'm hoping to kind of acquire. <laughs> um, it belonged to an elderly gentleman that lived in Cookfield and um, a, a lovely man called Cyril Pike who gave it to my mother. And I can remember borrowing it from Cyril and taking it to school when I was a little girl because I thought it was just completely normal, really, to have dinosaur bones found on your doorstep. Now I realize that it was actually something quite special. But this is something that Gideon Mantell could easily have been sent, something similar to this, and, and puzzled over and come up with his amazing theory. So he, he discovered Iguanodon, Buckland Megalosaurus, and the third dinosaur was called Hyliosaurus which was also a Mantell discovery um, from Cookfield. And it was those three dinosaurs that are the original, one from Oxfordshire, two from Sussex. Now, uh, at Cookfield, there's very little there left of the quarry. It's actually just a, a football pitch these days with a little kind of a copse of, of trees with some rocks still poking out. But my nephew plays uh, football there most weekends. <laughs> so, but there is, there is, if you ever passing through Cookfield, there is a commemorative uh, monument there now since 2000 to celebrate Gideon Mantell because before that he was really lost to science. He wasn't really celebrated like um, Buckland and Owen were so I like to big him up in any story of the discovery of the dinosaurs. So you might be forgiven for thinking for all this talk of stuff going on back in the early 19th century that uh, finding dinosaur in Britain is a thing of the past and that these days we are more likely to hear of new discoveries of dinosaurs perhaps in China or, or, or South America but in fact 
parts of Britain are still world-class destinations for finding dinosaur. And one place in particular uh, is the Isle of Wight. And it's so rich in dinosaur fossils of many different species that it's been nicknamed Dinosaur Island. Now, the rocks that make up um, the Isle of Wight date from the Cretaceous period. That's uh, round about 100 million years ago. That's a similar age to the rocks that you get from Cookfield. And at this time, many different species of um, dinosaur lived in that area that had later become the Isle of Wight. And today, dinosaur fossils literally fall out of the crumbling cliffs, mainly along the southwest coast of the island. And it was here just uh, about 18 months ago now that an amateur fossil enthusiast called Martin Simpson uh, made an exciting discovery of a new iguanodon specimen. So this is a very similar dinosaur to the one that Mantell named from his fossils from Cookfield. But Martin has found this new specimen in, in a cliff in the Isle of Wight. And whenever he can... Martin visits the site to excavate a few more of, of the iguanodon bones. And the second clip I'm going to show you from the series is my chance of, to join Martin um, and, on a very sunny day last February to see what it's like to actually uh, collect dinosaur bones in the field. If the computer's going to play ball, it is. Oh, ignore the clock. Maybe I can fast forward and type. Actually, no, maybe I will write. <laughs> Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> I know, sort of the suspense. I should build the suspense, I think. My interest in rocks and fossils has taken me all over the world, but I've never had the chance to take part in the excavation of a dinosaur, especially not in such an incredible setting. Woo. Martin Simpson, an amateur enthusiast, is in charge of the dig. Now, I might just pause it there because... Um, I've shown this clip before, and a very logical question that somebody in the audience asked me was, how, given that kind of cliff, did Martin ever come across the site that now we're digging? You know, how, how did he, he... He goes out most days in all weathers looking for, for dinosaur bones on the island, but how could he possibly ever have spotted this specimen? Well, the way he does it is to walk along the beach at the bottom of this cliff section, and if you find a piece of bone down on the beach, you know that it's come from somewhere above you. And then you walk up that section of cliff um, and hopefully you can identify what layer it comes from if you have a good understanding of the geology of, of this particular section of coastline. The, the question, questioner also said, does he always use ropes? And I have to say that um, we were very safety conscious on the shoot and, and, and used ropes. As you can see, it was pretty dangerous to be taking cameras and stuff down onto this site. But also, this, this, this cliff changes almost week by week. You can get extra landslips going on. So it's a very challenging environment, but one that Martin knows very well, so he was able to, to find the specimen. Watch out below! Come along. There we go. There's a lot of debris. 
horror. This is extreme paleontology. <laughs> Woo! So this is it. This is the site. This is the site. Yep. What an incredible site, halfway up this cliff. The bones are in about a four foot depth, and it's going into the cliff, sort of northwest, head first that way. So what we've got to do is get all the screw, all the stuff that's slipped off it, back to fresh rock, which is what I'm doing here. So what can I do to help? Well, if you want to carry on, it's actually, if you like, we come across this bone here. It looks like a rib. It's got a sort of... Oh, my goodness, just sticking out the cliff. Yeah. Can you see that? That is a dinosaur bone, just poking out. We're lucky today because it's still quite wet. As it's coming out, it's wet, so it's probably okay to put a knife in. If you want to use the hammer and chisel, feel free. Any moment, there could be another bone. I just... <laughs> You're right, you've got to be patient. I'm sure there's something in here. Ah. I am like a woman possessed now. At any moment, there could just be another bone sticking out. You've got to be so delicate, but I think it's coming out. It's loose. Is that it? Yeah. Surface, it's so it's beautiful. Though, it? it is, it's, got it's immaculate. Beautiful pattern on it. And look, it is just like a modern day bone. So, what do you think we're looking at here? It's, um, it's splitting at the end. And what I think that is, it's the bone that goes under the vertebrae. Underneath each vertebrae, there's this little, little piece that comes up and it, it branches off at the top. But that's good, we haven't got many of those. I've just excavated my first piece of dinosaur. It's astonishing to see this. So much effort goes into even the smallest finds. But it's from such tiny fragments of bone that you can begin to piece together an idea of this magnificent creature. Okay, so yeah, the only bone that we did manage to find was that little fragment that Martin had already sort of seen sticking out. But... Um, we were there for about two hours, and literally I did not want to leave hacking away at that cliff face. It really is a compelling task, but um, if you imagine that that's just one fragment of a, a creature that would have been six to seven metres long, um, it's, um, he's got his work cut out <laughs> for him. <laughs> um, he hopes to actually excavate the rest of that dinosaur uh, probably in the next six to, to six months to a year and then there is a, a little museum down in the Isle of Wight called Dinosaur Farm which he'll be putting it on display but it's just one of, of maybe up to 200 different dinosaur skeletons Peter will correct me if I'm wrong that have been collected from the, the island it really is one of the best places that you can go if you're interested in finding your own dinosaur and I think the thing the reason why I wanted to kind of include a couple of clips about dinosaurs is because they really I think uh, capture the imagination of young and old. And that dates back right from when they were first discovered in, in Victorian times. You might have picked up a reference there to Charles Dickens on the first 
clip. Uh, that even when dinosaurs were first discovered, around about the time of Dickens, they, they were big news. And he put Megalosaurus, that first one discovered, into the first paragraph of his book, Bleak House. And I think ever, ever since, I'm sure all of us in the audience have at some point been, been struck by just something about dinosaurs, the, the biggest creatures that have ever walked upon the earth, that there's something terribly fascinating about them. And uh, just a little diversion while I think of it, one of the highlights of making Fossil Detectives a series for me was to get to meet uh, a hero of mine, David Attenborough. Now, he has had a lifelong interest in fossils since being a child growing up in Leicester. And um, it was very exciting to get a chance to, to visit his house in Richmond sit next to him on the sofa and interview him about his love of fossils and see some of the tremendous diversity of fossils that he has collected on his travels from all over the world. He has a, a, a wonderful collection. And one of, the stories I, uh, one of the questions I asked him was, if you could go back in time, when would you go to? What would you be looking for in terms of um, wildlife that we've identified from the fossil record? And his initial response was that he would go back to see the beginnings of life on Earth. So perhaps, you know, some of those microbes that you see up in, up in the, the fossil microbes that you see, fossil evidence for microbes that you see up in Scotland, you know, he might go back and see some of those early microbial life. But and then he, he, he quickly said, actually, no, I would go back to um, the, the Mesozoic, the, the geological era made up of, of the Triassic, the Jurassic and the Cretaceous when, when dinosaurs roamed on the Earth. And he said to see the biggest things that have ever walked on Earth. You know, wouldn't, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you go back to see that? So perhaps that's a question for you at the end. You know, when would you go back to in geological time? Anyway, David Attenborough's interview is in the first two programmes, and, and for me that is a great highlight of the series. But going back to um, the, the talk, um, dinosaurs were undoubtedly the biggest creatures that have ever walked the planet. However, um, there have been some other very large animals in the past as well, and you don't need to go back nearly as far into the dim distance past um, to see them. Um, dinosaurs famously died out 65 million years ago, but fast-forwarding now to the recent geological past, just the last two million years uh, are known as the Ice Age. Um, this is when, at points in the past two million years, uh, glaciers and uh, ice sheets have covered parts of Britain, waxed and waned as climate has fluctuated over this time. And although it's, not, although it's known as the Ice Age, uh, the Ice Age wasn't always icy. The, the, the glacial phases were interspersed with warmer periods called interglacials and um, that had climates rather similar to what we're experiencing today. And during the interglacials, of the Ice Age, there have been um, some rather unusual and large animals lived, that have lived in Britain. And again, we have fossil evidence that reveals to us this kind of lost world of the Ice Age, what was living at that time. Now, if we go back just 120,000 years, so we're talking much, much more recent than, say, when the dinosaurs were alive, to one of those warmer interglacial periods, we've got fossil evidence for animals, exotic animals like lions, hyenas, elephants, and particularly hippos living right across the south of England and stretching up into Yorkshire. And um, in the London programme of Fossil Detectives, 
one of my favourite stories. I haven't got it to show you here, but one of my favourite stories um, is about hippos that used to live in the Thames and um, the kind of fossils that you can find in the Thames gravels, like large um, teeth belonging to hippos, things like that. I think that's another very exciting story. But if we go back to the previous warm interglacial period, 650,000 years ago, um, there's particularly good fossil evidence for the large mammals that lived at that time in the east of England, and which is our next stop on, on the cliffs. And uh, so I'm just going to show you... Sorry. <laughs> Heading up to Norfolk now and the east of England to see a discovery of a creature called the West Runton Elephant. And I'll let the clip speak for itself. This is West Runton Beach in Norfolk, home of one of Britain's most famous jumbo fossil finds. Stormy seas and tearing winds crash against the east coast today. And it was weather like this that led to the discovery of the largest mammoth skeleton ever found, the 650,000-year-old West Runton elephant. In the storms of 1990, some bones were found at the bottom of the cliffs of West Runton that turned out to be from a very large species of mammoth, the steppe mammoth. Nigel Larkin is piecing together all the fossilised bones of the mammoth, which is an extinct type of elephant. What we have here are some fantastic bones for you to look at. Oh, Wow. Just a couple of very big bones. And these are just fragments of the, of the large piece of bone. So this is actually a part of the famous West Runton elephant. That's right. And what we have here are the two knee areas. We've got the left and the right. If you can imagine the whole thigh bone going up, the bottom of the thigh bone would be about level with your eyes. The top of the thigh bone would be about three metres high. The shoulders would be about four metres high. If you can picture a really large Indian elephant or African elephant, bearing in mind that the adult males are about five tonnes in weight, this specimen would have been about ten tonnes in weight, so twice the weight of the largest adult male African elephant at the moment. But moving towards the front of the animal, that's really where you get the big indicator that this is a mammoth rather than an elephant. The tusks are huge. Not only are they much bigger than an African elephant, but they're really curved. They plunge downwards in this big U-shape and come up again at the front, but they also curve outwards and then inwards at the same time to give that marvellous double curve of a classic mammoth tusk shape. Now, these are just two of, what, dozens and dozens of bones you've found? Yeah, and these are only fragments of much larger bones, actually. You can see some of the large limb bones behind us here, the sort of scale of animal you're looking at. <laughs> They're these, just enormous. These are bones that are larger than most dinosaur bones. It's only the very biggest sauropod dinosaurs, the ones with the long necks and the long tails, that would have bones bigger than this. So how much of the animal have you got? We've got 85% of the skeleton, which is incredible. To put that into context, the only other two partial skeletons of this species known are about 10% and 15% complete. So it's by far and away the best example of its species in the world. And that final 15%, do you think that's still out there waiting to be found? Some of it might still be out there in the cliffs, but we do know that we had these guys around, the spotted hyenas, and they were much bigger than the African ones we have today. They were about 15% bigger, and they were definitely around chewing the bones. Right. We um, didn't find any of their bones because they're carnivores, and bones of carnivores are very rare. This is a modern skull, but we know they were around because they left us these. We've got dozens of these. This is the dropping fossilised of our spotted hyena. Wow. So do you have any idea what happened to this mammoth? 
We think we do. And again, that's very unusual in the fossil record when you only get a fragment of a bone normally to have such a complete skeleton. And we do have pathology in this skeleton, which is very exciting. It's very rare. What we have over here uh, on the backside of the knee, this bit here is broken and rehealed. It must have survived by a number of months or years. If you look, they should be perfectly symmetrical and they're clearly not. This is what was inside the body when it was alive. But it's completely different to the left side. And it must have taken at least 18 months or two years to get to that state for it to be so different from this other bone. So this poor mammoth, this giant creature was limping around yeah. and then eventually, do you think, succumbed to its injury? We think so. It was severely disabled, so much so we can pick it up in the other bones, actually, in the pelvis and elsewhere. But we know that this major injury on the right-hand side would have been very uh, debilitating and we find it in a riverbed. It looks as though the skeleton went over onto its right-hand side and that's its injured side, and it just couldn't get up again. And so it died there in the riverbed. Gosh, that's which, such a vivid picture. It's, it's, it's so tragic in a way to is. think of such tragic an for the impressive elephant. animal. But for us, that was fantastic, because <laughs> it died in the riverbed, so it got preserved. Had it died on the riverbank, maybe 20 or 50 metres either side, it would eventually have been weathered and totally destroyed. But because it was in the river, because it was covered up fairly rapidly, after the hyena damage and the trampling by other mammoths and other injuries it sustained... It is still mostly preserved, and that wouldn't have happened if it died elsewhere. So indeed, a rather tragic tale of the West Fronted Elephant, but um, a, a spectacular fossil find. And one thing that wasn't mentioned on that, um, uh, on, on that clip there is that um, the initial discovery of the West Runton Elephant was made by some local amateurs called Harold and Margaret Hems, who deserve the credit for first spotting a large part of the pelvis bone sticking out of, uh, of the cliff at West Runton and alerting Norfolk Museum Services that this was potentially something that they should investigate. And I think that part of the story illustrates something that is, is really worth emphasising about paleontology, because although... Um, uh, as a science, you know, you need to study for a very long time, perhaps to become, a, 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 you know, a full-blown bona fide paleontologist. Actually, a, a lot of big discoveries come from just amateur enthusiasts who, who, like you and me, walking along the beach, pick something up and go, now that's intriguing, that's something potentially different from what I've seen before and pass it on to their local geology group or a local museum. And that's how some of the best discoveries have been made over the years and there are several stories in the series that we feature like that and if there's time at the end I'll show you another one but um, there's, before I do that um, I wanted to change scale a little bit um, undoubtedly uh, large, fossil, large fossils like dinosaur fossils like the West Runton mammoth are a lot of fun but it's sometimes tiny fossils micro fossils that offer us insights into the past, but way beyond what their, their tiny size might suggest. So in the final clip that I want to show you now, we're going to go back to Central England, which is the first programme of the series, which is going out on Friday night. And we're heading back. Um, these creatures were alive back during a time when there were volcanoes erupting around uh, the landscape of what is now Hertfordshire. And that's what this clip starts with. And then we will see just how... Uh, wonderful tiny fossils can be to compare to the larger fossils that we've been focusing on so far.
When ash settles, it can create the perfect environment for preservation. Some of the most exquisitely preserved fossils in the world have been mineralized in clay that was once volcanic ash. Remarkably, these fossils can be found in Britain today, but they are mostly microscopic in size. So to see just how amazing they are, some high-tech detective work is called for. Here in Oxford, a research team has been applying cutting-edge techniques to analyze these microfossils. Based at the Oxford University Museum, Derek Sibiter is a key member of the team. What have we actually got here? Well, we've got some of the most amazing fossils that have been discovered anywhere on the globe in the last 20 years. Really? In this funny-looking potato thing? Well, yes, really. I can't quite believe that this has got anything to do with what we're seeing on the screen. Well, the fossils which you see in the nodules are transformed by the process of computer rendering to give type of fossil here which you see on screen. And what you've got here is a sea spider. We can make it turn around so we can see the different parts of the morphology. And this sea spider is very similar to the sea spiders which you find present day. And how big is that creature, that sea spider? From here to here, it's about four millimetres. And all that detail in, in four millimetres is preserved inside one of these nodules? Yes, and much more because when you increase the magnification, you can see here on this purple-coloured nose-like uh, feature, the mouth. So that's the mouth of the sea spider. They're as rare as hen's teeth. You find them in about two or three localities anywhere in the world. And this, I think it's fair to say, is the best preserved of any of them. They are preserved in calcite, a form of calcium carbonate. How significant is this find? It's very significant because what these animals are providing us with are unique insights into evolution. They're throwing up particularly combination of features which have been lost during the evolutionary process. And by analysing these features, we can get a much better understanding of ancient pathways, ancient lines of descent. Our work has uh, hit the popular press and, in, and indeed the broadsheets. But the thing we're most proud of is page 41 in the sun. <laughs> Old Todger, great headline there. But, but what was the story, though? Well, this is a small microfossil. It belongs to that very important invertebrate group called, called the arthropods. It's related to crabs, to shrimps, to lobsters, uh, scorpions, that sort of thing. But the reason the sun got it was because it preserves the oldest male organ anywhere on the planet. Fantastic. Yeah. In perfect 3D preservation. In perfect 3D <laughs> preservation. In fact, it's probably fit for action. <laughs> and it's not just this creature that was particularly tiny. All of these fossils are pretty small. They vary in size from less than a millimetre to about five centimetres. The images you see on the screen are models constructed from virtual dissections, a pioneering way of analysing microfossils. We take the fossil, uh, we cut it into a very small block, and we grind it away, very thin slice at a time. We take a photo, and we do it again and again and again. Until at the end, of course, the fossil's gone, but the um, data is captured on computer. We get a data set like this. 
Mark Sutton grinds down the fossils in successive stages. Although the fossils are destroyed through this method, he creates a kind of dissection with a rewind button. You can see incredible levels of detail. We've come up with a process that's actually producing a very powerful way of working with fossils, and something that's in a lot of ways better than having the real fossil in front of you. We can do things with this material that we couldn't do in any other way, and it's providing just a very important new way of working for paleontologists. So, to, to me, some of the most, very, very small, but some of the really most fascinating fossils that I, uh, that I encountered while working on the series. And I think what that, that story illustrates nicely is that uh, there are aspects of paleontology today that are really cutting-edge 21st century science <laughs> that are making use of, of uh, up-to-the-minute technology to, to study something that... Um, you know, you wouldn't be able to study. I mean, if Buckland and Mantell had found uh, those funny potato nodules, they wouldn't really have been able to study them and get the insights into ancient life that um, Derek Sibiter and his team is, is doing today. Now, I know we're, time is getting on a bit, so the final clip that I've chosen um, to show to you tonight um, is illustrates the type of thing that if you were to go to one of uh, the great fossil locations, hunting locations of Britain that we have, I mean, really, you can find fossils all over the country, but you're probably familiar with the North Yorkshire coast and the Dorset coast, the Jurassic coastline, uh, as, as places that many people go on holiday uh, to, to look for fossils. You don't have to go to those destinations, but if you do, uh, keep your eyes peeled, as this clip will show you, because every now and then... Um, oh, we've got another little run-in. But um, every now and then, uh, a new and very exciting discovery is made. Again, just by people who might be walking along the beach, an, an amateur or, or, or holiday maker even, just would see something in the rock and then, and then report it. And this is an example of that. A little further along the coastline here in Yorkshire, I've heard there's an intriguing new fossil just exposed on the beach. is any evidence of ancient life naturally preserved. Phil Manning is a professional dinosaur hunter and one of our regular fossil detectives. Hi, Phil. Hi there. What are you looking at? You've got to come and look at this. This is a gorgeous fossil. You really rarely get to see one still stuck in a beach bed like this. Wow. So what is this? Is this a, a, a spine? Absolutely right. You're looking down the backbone of a sea dragon, a marine reptile that was stalking the oceans 190 million years ago. And from these bones, do you know what creature it was, what reptile? Absolutely. You can look at the actual shape of the bones. It tells us straight away we're dealing with an animal called an ichthyosaur. An ichthyosaur, Literally right. meaning fish lizard. These pieces here, these are, are they individual vertebrae, like we have in our spines? They are indeed, and you can even see the discs that would have padded in between each vertebrae. Obviously, these have turned to stone over the 190 million years, but they show the spacing of the vertebrae. It's beautiful. To actually have the discs, that's incredible preservation. Well, it's, they've turned to stone. This, this is still, it's a fossil. The, the original material is long gone. And is this quite a, a recent exposure? Yeah, a local group have found this fossil quite recently, and you can see how it's already been weathered quite badly by the seas on this wave-cut platform. But at low tide, we get to see it for a few hours. Yes, indeed. And so how, 
big was this ichthyosaur? Well, you're looking at an animal about three to four metres in length, and this is a marine reptile. Well, I know it's called a fish lizard, ichthyosaur, but it is a reptile, an air-breathing reptile. If you can imagine, it's got this long snout, lots of teeth, going into a really streamlined body. It's got small paddles at the front and paddles at the back and a, almost a shark-like tail with a beautiful dorsal fin, just like you'd see on, on, on a shark. But this is a reptile. These animals were perfectly adapted, streamlined, to living in a marine environment. These bones embedded in the rock are the fossilised remains of the animal itself. So what's going to happen to this fossil? Well, it's been weathered quite badly, but there's a huge amount of information we can get from the backbone. The most important information, though, would have been from the skull. Now, unfortunately for us, some folks got to the specimen before we could. Now, sometimes people dig things out of the ground and they don't have the right tools, knowledge or expertise. And this can happen. And this is where the skull was. Now, it's, it's sort of a cautionary tale. In fact, we've only got the tale. The caution is, <laughs> don't remove the skull. Right. And, and it had all information on what the animal was like, probably even down to a species level. And that's gone. That information has been lost. So here, I think that's even a chisel mark. You can see where somebody's tried to lever out the skull. It's so frustrating. It's a shame. If, if you find something like this, the best thing to do is go to your local museum, or there are groups around the country who specialise in knowing exactly what to do when you find a fossil. And the most frustrating thing for me, I can actually see where some of the skull bones once lay. That's, that's where part of the skull, the rostrum, was once sat. And it, it's just gone. Shall we take some records of it, even though it's partially gone? There's still a lot of information we can record, so it's definitely worth doing, yes. So there we are, a rather exciting find, but with that sad story that some unscrupulous people had got to it before um, it had been brought to the attention of people that would really know what to do with a fossil like that, a lesson perhaps for us all in there. And, and I know we've really, nearly run out of time, so um, there we are. That was a flavour of uh, what fossil detectives have to offer, back from the discovery of the dinosaurs to 21st century virtual dissections and the... Um, I hope you all enjoy the series, and I know that now um, Peter um, has very kindly um, agreed to answer some questions um, that Mike will facilitate. And actually, I've got a question for Peter, because <laughs> how big do iguanodons get? Because <laughs> I think I said they were bigger than they really were. Six or seven yeah, I did, but they don't get that big, do they? That's all right. Do you? As soon as I said it, I thought, oh, no, they, <laughs> they're really that big. But well, they are. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Hermione. Very interesting. We'll set aside 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes. On, uh, on the series, on the fossil detective series. It was good fun. And, I really enjoyed it. And also author of this booklet, the Fossil Detectives Field Guide, copies of which you can apply for. I don't think we've got many in the building tonight, but we do have um, forms which you can fill in in the foyer. Um, 
And we'll get a copy to you. They're free, aren't they? Yeah. They're free, and you gave blood, sweat, blood and tears for this. <laughs> it is a beautifully illustrated book, and uh, I heartily recommend that you fill one of these forms in on the tables upstairs. Um, well, let's... That's the advertising over. Let's uh, get on with some questions. Uh, if, as ever, just put your hand up if you do have a question. Before um, you do ask the question, however... Emily will rush oh, <laughs> she will rush to you with a microphone, depending on where you're sitting. Please wait until the microphone's under your nose before you answer the question. Ask the question. So let's uh, I'll throw the floor open to you. It's always embarrassing, isn't it? After nobody's <laughs> got any questions. <laughs> yes. Um, you said that the series will be repeated on BBC two. Are you going to be doing a new series? And if so, will you go to the gravel pits in the Cotswold Water Park, perhaps? Ah, no. <laughs> I do know that the Cotswold Water Park uh, gravel pits are a place that you can go, and there are organised events there at the weekend for families to go along and, and hunt for fossils. Um, the question of a second series, well, you'd have to ask somebody at the OU about that. <laughs> we, say, we certainly haven't run out of stories, have we, No, Peter? I mean, we could just keep going for so long on, on the stories. Um, you mentioned a gravel pit there, and I would heartily recommend looking in even just the gravel on a drive in this part of the world, because it is so easy to find bits of fossil in just ordinary gravel. You can find... Even the gravel around the OU here, um, this evening, um, two different groups of kids came along with fossils from gravel in Milton Keynes, bits of ammonite derived from the Cretaceous period to, uh, into the gravel. And you can even find um, a bit, bits of mammoth teeth in, in gravel, as happened once around the OU here. So do go for gravel pits. Um, you don't have to go down to the gravel pit, but certainly... Um, have a look in any bits of gravel, and you can sometimes find uh, a remarkable range of different fossils. And that, and that was actually one of the stories we did in the East of England programme, which is one of the programmes that's going to be repeated. And, and Peter took myself and a group of kids along to gravel pits, um, near, near, a gravel pit near Peterborough, and it, it, it was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. How did you two get interested in paleontology in the first place? I said this heart, heartfully. There's... Um, some young people in the audience. I mean, were you that age? When well, well, for me, it was really, I suppose, the Cookfield connection and yeah. this idea of dinosaurs. I mean, one of my earliest memories um, was the Queen's Silver Jubilee and um, going to deliver egg boxes to a lady in the village who was making a giant dinosaur costume. And I just, <laughs> that really captured my imagination. OK, it wasn't a fossil, but it was just something that I, I, I really have always loved from an early age. And um, my, my background is geology, is, is geomorphology, which is surface processes. I'm not a paleontologist by, by training. But um, having worked in, in different locations around the world, I've always kept my eye out for fossils. And um, remember finding a particularly good one when working in Antarctica. And, you know, we had all our research project going on, but I think I was probably most excited by the fossil that I found <laughs> during that trip. So it's just something that's always been there. How about you, Peter? You, you well, are a well, I was, I was reaching for this guide because uh, in here I put an illustration of some fossil sponges. Now, when I was five, um, you won't be able to see this from the distance. You might just be able to make out a round object that I'm pointing to. Um, we stopped beside uh, a road in Hampshire, and 
I just went for a walk and I found this object underneath a tree that had been struck by lightning and I, I didn't know what it was at all. My parents didn't know what it was. Um, but they had the good fortune or good sense really to, to take me to a museum where um, a chap said that he'd been living before humans had ever appeared. And to me, that was such an extraordinary statement because you think of that age that humans have always been around. And of course, they haven't. And this was living about 80 million years ago. So that's what sparked off my interest at, at about five and a half, I think. And I could never do it at school, um, but I persuaded my parents to go on holiday to places in Britain where there were fossils. And so I just kept up, kept up the interest. But um, <coughs> a sponge like that is probably the most common fossil that you can find in gravel. That and the bullet-shaped things called belemnites, which are the remains of extinct squid-like creatures. And, um, you know, I expect there's some kids in the audience who uh, have already been finding fossils in gravel. Um, just keep looking. You'll find a lot more. The astonishing thing for me about these things is when you're actually digging up fossils on the beach, you're the first person to have seen that. Yeah. For yeah. some of that was <laughs> amazing. It's that thrill just of discovery. Uh, I mean, that's something that if you haven't yet been out looking for fossils, when you find one, you, it, it, is, it, is, yeah. it is great. And yeah. I don't think that ever leaves you. I mean, yeah. that's what David Attenborough was saying. You know, he's 80 plus. And he was saying how that, that thrill of discovery is yeah. just something that is always there, I think. Yeah. Do you have any more questions? Yes, you've got one over there. Um, you said during the piece about the mammoth that um, carnivore remnants are quite hard to find. Why is this? Uh, yes. <laughs> um, well, usually carnivores form a small proportion of the species in um, in, in a group of animals um, because they need to eat uh, other um, animals and so they're kind of at the top of the food chain and there are fewer of them so that's probably the main reason why carnivores are rare it's a good question um, is there a minimum amount of time it takes for a fossil to develop um, <laughs> That's another one for you, Peter. Well, I think the, <laughs> amazingly, um, you can find evidence that the soft tissues of, for example, fossil fish from Brazil have been replaced by minerals in a matter of hours. If you read a really old textbook, it might say that it took millions of years to form a fossil. Absolute rubbish, because um, you can tell from looking at the way that modern creatures decay in different sorts of environments, that their soft parts have been replaced by chemical ac action, bacterially influenced, um, in a matter of hours or days for the soft parts. I mean, in the case of shells, like uh, cockle shells, mussel shells, and things like that, or ammonite shells you probably know about, um, then those are usually just the hard parts which remain when the soft parts have decayed. And the preservation history of those may extend for a very long time, in fact over millions of years but it doesn't necessarily take a long period of time for something to form um, uh, in the fossil record okay. Is that a hand going up there? Or are you just stretching? <laughs> Do you have any more questions? Yeah, if we could take the person over to the left and we'll come to you in the middle in a, in a minute <coughs> I've witnessed um, 
septarian nodules being broken open in search of ammonites. Can you explain some of the science of how this formation comes to be? On you go. Well, when an organism dies and falls to the sea floor, it very often creates a slightly different chemical environment around it as it decays um, through bacterial activity and the soft parts decaying. And that often causes minerals to come out of the seawater, because in seawater you've got a lot of different chemical elements that are dissolved, and they tend to concentrate around the rotting organism, which is why if you're looking for ammonites on the Dorset coast, for example, or the Yorkshire coast, you very often look for the round lumps called nodules or concretions in the hope there will be an ammonite that's inside. And the reason for the lump around the ammonite is that the rotting ammonite has favoured the precipitation of the minerals that have come out of the seawater or the water in the sediment below the surface and just grown and hardened around it. And these, what you call septarian nodules, are lumps that have a lot of often beautiful crystals filling cracks. They've dried up, they've formed, they've dried out. They're often elliptical shapes which um, have grown in that shape because the weight of sediment has flattened them as they've, as they've grown. And so often in the centre of them, but not always, you sometimes don't find anything at all in the centre of these. And you think, well, perhaps originally there was something which had just soft parts, which um, is completely rotted away, for which we have no evidence at all. So that's the mechanism of formation of, of those uh, nodules. You often get them in the Jurassic. Uh, in, in fact, in central England, they're quite common. Mm. A gentleman there. Um, this is really a follow-up to the question before last. Um, I've never actually seen or handled human fossils, mm -hmm. but it, I often wondered, um, are they, at what stage in the time, are they still, are the recent ones still bone? I mean, say recent, I mean, things like Neanderthals. Are they still bone? And are the earlier ones, I've seen things like Australopithecines, are they... Have they been mineralised? Well, I, I, to, to me, this opens up the kind of definition of sub-fossils, true fossils. How old does something have to be to be yeah. a fossil? And, 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 and in the series, I suppose we, there are some fossils that we include that should be strictly termed sub-fossils. They are not yet fully fossilised, fully mineralised, and they would decay if, if they were open to the air and not, and not properly preserved. So when it comes to the sort of evolution of ancient humans and, the, and the, the fossils that have been found. I suppose it is an age thing, is it, Peter? And the environmental conditions that they've yes. been found in. Um, the older the bone, the more likely that all the holes in it have been filled in with extra minerals. Now, in the case of hominid uh, fossils, which um, are from our own family, the, the, you know, our, our, our own uh, ancestors... <laughs> Um, they may be uh, old enough and in a situation in which the bones have got their uh, pore spaces filled in with extra minerals. Um, the nearer you come to the present day, the less chances that that will happen. And, for example, when um, Hermione mentioned finding uh, um, bits of mammoth, and what I did, in gravel, those bones are really quite light compared with bones from the Jurassic. So... In terms of what is a fossil and what's not, what's an, the arbitrary sort of cut-off, um, usually things that, um, evidence of life that's about 10,000 years or older 
that we would call uh, a fossil. But there really is no hard and fast rule for what you call a fossil. And archaeologists often talk about sub-fossil remains. Um, it's very variable, the extent to which bones are actually replaced or infilled by, um, by sediment or minerals. Yes, a question at the back. Um, the minerals going into the fossils, but how do they actually get into the fossils? Oh, okay. Well, that's a fairly easy one. Um, when a bone or a shell is lying within, say, silt or mud um, or sand, it will get covered over by more and more uh, soft material, which eventually turns into rock. The water that surrounds the fossil, often and part which passes through the soft sediment and even passes through solid rock, contains within it dissolved minerals in solution. Um, you know, just like if you make a cup of tea and you stir up the sugar, it'll dissolve away. Uh, then if you let that evaporate, you'll eventually get the sugar back out of solution again. Or salt, if, it, if you dissolved salt. And it's the same thing um, that the water that percolates through into the holes in the fossil often contains dissolved salts. And then they will, if the concentration gets high enough of them and the temperature and all the other conditions are just right, those minerals will come out of solution and fill the spaces. So it gets in in water, dissolved in the water. So is that how you get crystals? Like yes. Inside Yes, that's exactly how you get crystals. I mean, whenever you have a hole in a rock, it has a tendency to get filled given enough time. And like these beautiful crystal-filled um, lumps that look nothing on the outside, but when you cut them open or break them open, you see beautiful like amethyst crystals, that's purple quartz, projecting into the centre. That's where water's got into a hole, which has been a gas bubble usually, and the water has evaporated um, over quite a long period of time over different intervals of time, and left behind the dissolved material that was in the water that got into the hole. We'll take uh, one, one more question. This, this will be the last, unfortunately. Yes. We're just off to the Murray Firth for a week's holiday. Is that a good place to look for fossils? And if so, what sort? Well, it's a very good place to look for dolphins, <laughs> living <laughs> dolphins. <laughs> I, must, I must confess, I, don't, I can't think of the exact ge geology of the, the um, Murray Firth area. But it's the Clash at Quarry. Oh, yes. Would you like to? Uh, that's further north, is it? Or is it no, uh, that's on the south side yeah. near Elgin. Um, mm. It was a story that we covered. Um, there's, a, there's a quarry there just um, to the north of Elgin, that, that quarries a rock called the Hopeman Sandstone, a beautiful sandstone. If you've ever been to Edinburgh, um, the New Museum of Scotland is, is clad in this wonderful orange, pink and grey sandstone from the Clash at Quarry. And in the Hopeman Sandstone, um, you find uh, many, many uh, reptilian footprints. Now, age of the Hopeman we're going back Permian times, yeah, aren't we? 250. Yeah, about, dating from about 250 million years ago. And um, uh, a particularly good fossil 
I'm trying, it's all coming back to me now, <laughs> was, was found from the quarry. Because they found, they found a lot of um, reptilian footprints there, but it was very hard to match what kind of creature had made these, these footprints until a, a very significant discovery about 10 years ago now, I think it was made, where they found a block of sandstone that had a little hole in it. And uh, the quarrymen knew enough to think that this could be something geologically significant. And they showed it to um, a local geologist who thought it could be a fossil mould, uh, the entrance way to a fossil mould, which is essentially a void inside a rock where uh, the body part of an animal once had been, but the rock had formed around it. And for some one reason or another, the, the, the body part of the animal had dissolved away. It hadn't been mineralised and formed a fossil, but its, its shape had been left in the rock. And that fossil from Clashet Quarry turned out to be a perfect skull, a perfect, um, the void was a perfect skull of an animal called a dicynodont, which was a kind of almost pig-sized uh, uh, reptile dating, predating the dinosaurs. And they were able to match the, the dicynodonts then to some of the reptile footprints that had been found in the quarry. Yeah, what was really good about that skull was I think that was the one they stuck in a CT scanner, which is one of these medical scanners which, uh, when it wasn't being used for humans, um, they put this uh, lump of rock in because they could see there were holes in it. And because this very clever piece of equipment can detect difference in, differences in density, could see where the holes were without having to break it open. So you've got this wonderful three-dimensional skull um, <coughs> visible on the computer and capable of being made into something that was three-dimensional with a special moulding technique uh, from the inside of a block that all you could see was just a few little holes of funny shapes on the mm. outside. It was a wonderful piece of science. And again, one of the um, examples where 20th century techniques, in this 21st century techniques, well, I suppose it was the end of the 20th century, <laughs> was um, invented, but... Um, something that is used for another purpose being brought into mm. paleontology. And the case of the, um, um, the old Todger and all that business, with that wonderful sea, uh, scorp uh, sea uh, spider, um, they were using technology there, which was sort of first developed to um, put together the animations in films like Star Wars. Uh, the, the, the joining together of the different images mm. was uh, basically a computer program that's used in, in filmmaking. Mm. Uh, I mean, who knows? I would say, <laughs> perhaps we can sort of end on the thought that uh, maybe in a hundred years' time from 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 now, um, who knows what uh, somebody a successor to you, Hermione, presenting a series on fossils would be able to. Uh, show you, and I expect there'll be all sorts of surprises, which of which we know nothing at all at the moment. Um, and you know, it's still a very exciting time, and will remain so. And paleontologists uh, can start very young, and it's often amateurs can, that can make the most significant discoveries, as you were saying. Absolutely. So, so just to clarify, if at the Murray Firth, you can go to the Clashet Quarry and see a display of those reptilian footprints, and you can also go to the Elgin Museum and see the original. Uh, fossil mould. So that's a definitely a trip to go to on your holiday, I hope. <laughs> it's the thought of hippos in Yorkshire that lingers with me. <laughs> <laughs> hippos in Yorkshire. Well, yeah. Peter, Hermione, thank you ever so much for, um, yeah. for uh, answering those questions. I'm afraid we'd have to wind it up there, but just a couple of adverts before we do go. 
There's a book, isn't there? You've there is. co-authored a book. <laughs> yes. Um, which, copies of which are available outside. And they're part of a special offer tonight. <laughs> part of a special offer. And, of course, Hermione, for a small fee, will <laughs> we'll autograph them. Uh, yes. we'll, we'll sign them if you want. Um, if you want to catch up with uh, this recording tonight, should you want, you've got nothing better to do, uh, you can Google Beryl Theatre or Beryl Stadium. And I'm told that within 20 minutes, well, it'll be, it'll be on the internet, interweb by now, <laughs> already. Um, this is part of the Not A Keen Science Festival, the full programme for which, copies of which are, are in the foyer. Uh, it's quite an exciting programme. It runs for another week. And this weekend, in the city centre, North, central Milton Keynes, uh, there's a, an event called, <laughs> appropriately enough, Big Weekend. Uh, it's particularly to do with planetary and space science research. Uh, there are all kinds of interactive uh, activities going on, dotted all around the city centre. And it's not just planetary science. It's <laughs> chemistry. It's chemistry as well. Yeah, the poor orphan <laughs> of science. You poor, poor relation of science. Yeah, the, Oh, come on. We've got these interest groups in. We've got environmental science, we've got geology, we've got planetary science. Um, the OU Observatory is open, for instance, on, on Saturday. Uh, so if we've got a clear evening, it can watch stars here on the, on the OU campus. Um, so pick up a copy of the programme and the leaflet, the flyer for the, the big weekend, if you want. They're in the foyer on the way out. Uh, there's a very odd request here. We're looking for volunteers. Have we got the slide for that? For the BB? There it is. The BBC <laughs> seeks a family to go back to the future uh, from Milton Keynes. Uh, if you're interested in having your life severely disrupted by the BBC uh, over the next few months, um, if you're interested in being exploited by the BBC, then there, the details are there. I think that's covered everything I had to say, uh, except to say thank you for coming. There's been really a really heartening turnout for the, for the event. Thank you for the AV, uh, I think they're all boys uh, <laughs> up there, but the AV people uh, for, um, for the work that they put into tonight. Uh, thank you to Peter for answering the questions, uh, many of them. And in particular, thank you, Hermione, for coming all the way down from Edinburgh to give us a talk Anytime. on uh, fossil <laughs> detectives. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.